Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week... I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. In writing, there's the law of Chekhov's gun. One must never place a loaded rifle on a stage if it isn't going to go off. In this true story that I'm going to tell today, a gun appeared at a party and was indeed used, reportedly in a game of William Tell. What's more interesting to the tale, in my opinion, is why. Was what occurred simply an accident while playing a game? Or was it intentional? Was there an ugly spirit making it happen? And did this event propel one of the greatest writers of the Beat Generation to begin his craft? This week, I'll talk about the death of William S. Burroughs' wife, Joan Vollmer Burroughs. My favorite book is On the Road by Jack Kerouac. I read this back in high school, and it's one of the few books that I've read several times over. It's always hard to recommend, particularly when I worked at the bookstore, because it's not one of those hard beginning, metal, end books. It just kind of has a flow. Kerouac has a way with words. Nothing super exciting happens as a plot point. Reading it just feels like comfort in a way. So over the years, I've acquired many books about Jack Kerouac, and through those, I've learned about the cast of characters known as the Beat Generation. It's Allen Ginsberg, Neil Casty, Gregory Corso, William S. Burroughs, and that's just to name a few. 
And when you learn about Burroughs, one story that stands out is the death of his wife, Joan. And some say that it haunted him throughout his whole lifetime. Knowing as much as I did about the Beat Generation, I thought I knew the story. But just like other crimes that I've covered, upon researching it, I realized that this was deeper than what I knew. So for the episode, I used a lot of different articles, ranging from one in The New Yorker, an essay by David S. Wills on BeatDom.com, an article by Leah Russell in Watkins' Mind, Body, and Spirit magazine, a recorded dialogue between Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg, but the bulk of my research came from the leading authority on the beats, Barry Miles, and his book called Call Me Burroughs. So even though Joan Vollmer is basically the subject of this episode, William S. Burroughs very much overshadows the entire tale for quite a few reasons. Of course, he's the most famous, and he was the one who lived. Burroughs was this larger-than-life personality in a very frail human body, albeit impeccably dressed. Whereas Joan Vollmer was this woman lost to history, just a forgotten footnote to the Beat Generation. And it really wasn't too easy to find out information about her. Joan Vollmer was born on February 4, 1923 in Westchester, New York, and raised in Loudonville, which is an upper-middle-class part of Albany, New York. Her father, David Vollmer, was a manager of a film factory, and that provided a really nice upbringing for his family. After high school, Joan attended Barnard College, and when she was 17, she married, although there is no information that I could find about this marriage. After graduating college, she married for a second time to a Columbia Law student who was now in the Army named Paul Adams. She's described by Barry Miles in his biography of Burroughs as thin, with an oval, slightly heart-shaped face, fine features, fluffy brown hair, and pale blue eyes. Her future roommate, Edie Parker, described her as the type of person that personality made you think was beautiful. She had these heavy legs, and when she walked, her calves would wiggle. And to her future common-in-law husband, William Burroughs, she was pretty but not striking-looking. William Seward Burroughs II was born on February 5, 1914, in St. Louis, Missouri, to Laura and Mortimer Burroughs. I thought it was really interesting that Joan and William had birthdays just a day apart, and this may be why they got along so well. Burroughs' family was quite wealthy due to his grandfather's invention of a calculating machine. William was very close to his mother, and she practically worshipped the ground that he walked on. This, of course, would serve him later in life when he would get into lots of trouble with the law. William was a bit different from his older brother, Mort. Little Billy was a huge believer in spirits and the supernatural, just like his mother. And his brother and father were more stoic and serious. His interest in visions and psychic ability was something that Joan also found an interest in. When William was four, he suffered a major trauma, and this would impact him for the rest of his life. He had a Welsh nanny, Mary Evan, whom he called Nursey, and she had taken him with her on her day off. He was so attached to her that he cried and cried and cried when it was her day off, so she had to. 
Accompanying her that day also was her girlfriend and her girlfriend's boyfriend. Now, William had memories of being sexually abused by the boyfriend, as well as being forced to watch Nursie and her girlfriend having sex. So this close bond that he felt with Nanny was now forever damaged. The event caused Burroughs to think that this might have been why he was attracted to men. Throughout his life, Burroughs hated to be labeled by a sexual preference, although he was mainly attracted to and involved with younger men. And looking back, many would wonder what brought William and Joan together in the first place. That would be writers Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. When Joan's husband, Paul, was drafted into World War II, she moved into an apartment on the Upper West Side with her friend, Edie Parker, who just happened to be Jack Kerouac's girlfriend and later his first wife. Joan could often be found entertaining visitors in the tub while reading the day's newspapers. That was until she discovered that she was pregnant. There is some debate as to whether this was Paul Adams' child or not. Apparently, she hated this second marriage as much as her first, and she was over being married to Paul, and seeing other men. Plus, he was away a lot in the service, raising the probability that it wasn't her child. Joan went back to Albany during her pregnancy to stay with her parents. So it was around the same time that Burroughs was first introduced to Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, both through Lucian Carr, who was also a friend of Edie Parker's. So a love of literature, poetry, and writing quickly cemented the friendships. Burroughs was a good 10 years older, always dressed in suits and very well read, causing the rest of them to look up at him as almost a sort of leader of the group. Burroughs, Ginsburg, and Kerouac would later have many sexual encounters with each other throughout the years, which, of course, also deepened their connection. Now, William, like Joan, was also married at the time his being a marriage of convenience to a friend of his named Ilsa Clapper. She was a Jewish woman that was fleeing the Nazi government in Germany. Later on, after she was safe, the marriage was dissolved. By most accounts, around 1945 is when Joan and William finally met. Joan had returned with her baby Julie to the Greenwich Village area, and she was living in an apartment with Ginsburg and a guy named Hal Chase. This apartment, along with the first one that Joan shared with Edie Parker, became the hub for the Beat Generation. There was constant influx of people coming and going, drugs, drinking, lively discussions, lots of writing. Ginsburg and Kerouac got it into their heads that Joan and William, or Bill as they called him, should meet. This was prior to any serious sexual encounters between Alan, Jack, and Bill, so they weren't onto Bill strictly being into men. Joan by this time was no longer with her husband, Paul. Upon visiting her apartment on leave, he became so disgusted with the drug use and conditions that he left the marriage. He yelled, is this what I fought for? And never saw her again. Joan had become very addicted to Benzedrine, which she mostly used via inhalers from the drugstore. One article that I read claimed Kerouac was the one who introduced her to the drug, but it was most likely a mutual friend of theirs. Now, Joan loved a great cocktail, but Benzedrine was her drug. 
Bill was on the other end of the spectrum with his drugs, preferring first morphine and then heroin. His introduction to morphine was after this horrible accident in his teen years. He was working on this project, and there was a chemical explosion, which left him with a ton of splinters in his hands. So to get the splinters out and to ease his pain, they gave him morphine, and those effects stuck in his mind. After he moved to New York, he was a full-time addict, even resorting to dealing. But it wasn't drugs that Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac thought that Joan and Bill would find in common, of course. Both of them were highly intelligent and very witty, seeming to be the perfect match in the men's minds. And they were right about this matchmaking. Burroughs said, She was a very extraordinary woman, and we got talking and exchanging ideas. She was the smartest person around. Joan also reminded Bill of his mother. She had this quick judge of character and a really good sense of humor. And it wasn't too long before Burroughs moved into the apartment. He revealed his sexuality to the group, but it didn't disparage Joan from falling for him. They would spend hours having very deep conversations in Joan and Julie's room, laying on the bed with Joan's arms wrapped around Bill. Their drug use became more frequent, and it's never a good thing, but a very bad thing for Joan, who began having auditory hallucinations. One night, alarmed by arguing neighbors downstairs, she urged Alan and Jack to go break up the fight. They ran downstairs, but were astonished to find that the apartment was vacant, and Joan had been hearing these fights for months. Not only that, but she believed that radioactive spores were emanating from her skin. Jack was also done in by the Benjadrine, and he had to leave to stay with his mother for a while because his health declined so much. Bill ended up getting arrested for forging scripts for drugs, and he had to get his family to bail him out. This would be the first of many times. Perhaps encouraged by his family, he turned to methadone, to try to get clean and return to St. Louis. But that left Joan with some very unsavory characters back in New York, and they got her evicted from her apartment. She was found just walking the streets in acute amphetamine psychosis, which got her committed to Bellevue Hospital. Her parents came down to get Julie. In October of 1946, Bill got wind of Joan's troubles, and he sent her some money, telling her that he would be back in New York soon. The relationship was a really odd one, so they'd been sexual and close emotionally, yet he didn't take her with him to St. Louis. The connection was enough for him to bring her with him to his new farm in Texas, though, that he purchased with an old friend. Joan collected Julie from her parents, and the trio set off for their new life in East Texas. The property needed a lot of fixing up, but they enjoyed their life there. It had to have been such a sight to see Bill dressed in his suit, shooting Joan's benzedrine inhalers with a rifle off the porch. Little Julie, however, was not being that well cared for, walking around dirty with matted hair and always nervously chewing her arm, which eventually left a scar. And oddly, Joan obsessively cleaned everything except for her child. She could often be found in the yard sweeping lizards right off the trees. So even though theirs wasn't a very sexual relationship, Joan told Bill that she was pregnant. 
Due to her addiction, Bailey Jr. suffered withdrawal symptoms upon birth on July 21, 1947. Burroughs doted on his new son, not realizing his happiness at fatherhood. But as it happens with drugs, the focus got lost, and soon little Bailey would wander with his sister dirty and unkempt. The love affair with Texas soon ended when Burroughs got arrested for public indecency and intoxication. So he, Joan, and the kids had been driving when they decided to pull the car over to have an amorous adventure. Another driver reported them, and that resulted in the arrest. Bill declared he was done with Texas. From there, they moved to New Orleans. In the Big Easy, his drug habits returned. There was somewhat of a beat reunion with Jack, Neil Cassidy, and many others at the new house. Joan was still sweeping lizards off trees, and the kids were still running around in a filthy state. Joan had somehow caught polio and began walking with a limp and a cane. The drugs were taking their toll emotionally as well as physically. Her once clean skin and lush hair were now diminished by the drug use. And of course, New Orleans didn't last. Burroughs' car was searched and confiscated, resulting in more trouble with the law. They ended up in Texas, in another rundown house. The children were back to running in the yard while Bill practiced his marksmanship, shooting oranges out of the air. Reportedly, he would put an orange or grapefruit on Joan's head and shoot it off. They spent the evenings talking and drinking. So the trial in Texas about his first arrest was coming up, and it worried Bill and Joan about the prospective outcome. Burroughs decided to head to Mexico City to wait out the statute of limitations. But this would be a fatal decision for Joan. Burroughs settled into Mexico City quite nicely, and he enjoyed the freedom to walk the streets free from the roaming eyes of the law. I mean, here he could walk hand in hand with his young lovers, doing whatever he liked. For his common-law wife, Joan, she could easily score Benzedrine. But at this time, she seems to have given it up, taking to drinking heavily instead. The couple would coax their neighbors into watching the kids after they spent the day drinking. Still worried about his legal troubles back in the States, Burroughs found a slick Italian-American lawyer named Bernard B. Gerardo. Gerardo had witnessed his father's execution by Pancho Villa as a child. And this guy had worked since the age of 12. So he was very savvy on how things worked in Mexico. And he knew how to get a man out of trouble. And that was something Bill would soon need. After a very short time of being clean, Bill fell back in with heroin and morphine. And this seems to have infuriated Joan, who had stopped her drug habit. There was even a physical altercation. Bill was cooking up a shot when it was knocked out of his hand by Joan. And he responded by slapping her across the face. It's not clear what was behind her anger, whether it was the fact that she had quit and he'd started or something else. The focus on everything softened a bit when Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy came down to stay with them. Because Burroughs particularly loved the company of Kerouac. Their old friend Lucian Carr came down too for a visit. He and his girlfriend witnessed this deep connection between Bill and Joan firsthand. The two would play this sort of telepathy game where they would sit across the room from each other and they would each draw nine squares on a piece of paper and draw nine images in the squares. And then afterward, they would compare these images, kind of like remote viewing. Strikingly, more than half of the images would be the same. So this caused Lucian to believe that there was a really deep connection between the couple 
deeper than anyone could explain. Around this time, Burroughs was working on the manuscript for Junkie, mainly since he felt he needed to care for the family by selling the book. Kerouac was depressed about the low sales of his first novel, The Town and the City, so he joined in drinking heavily. Jack joined in on the heavy drinking and even dabbled with morphine with Bill. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Somehow, Bill managed to eventually curb the junk. Perhaps he did it for Joan, who had petitioned for a divorce. I think she was just really fed up with him at this point. Now, of course, that was a good thing, but he found himself drinking even more. So one night, he pulled a gun on a policeman at a bar. Luckily, the bartender wrestled the gun from him, and the policeman didn't arrest him. He just kept the gun. By this time, Joan seems to have lost the admiration she once had for William Burroughs. By his own account, he was a mess. Quote, I had deteriorated shockingly. My clothes were spotted and stiff from the drinks I spilled all over myself. I never bathed. I'd lost weight. My hands shook. And I was always spilling things, knocking over chairs and falling down. But I seemed to have unlimited energy and a capacity for liquor I never had before. The couple frequented this bar called The Bounty, always taking seats by the door so that they could watch Billy and Julie as they played in the street. This bar was owned by three Americans, and it served many an expat. Bill's friends at the bar seemed to enjoy his exploits with guns and alcohol. Always carrying, he once shot the head off of a mouse as a dare. But it was only a matter of time before guns and drink would prove deadly. The couple had to move apartments after neighbors complained about the late-night parties and the drug using. They found this place from a woman who was formerly a maid for Trotsky, named Juanita Penaluza Gonzalez, and this was in June of 1951. It was the same story at this place. They slept all day and they drank all night. The children ran wild and unsupervised the whole day on the roof, which was fenced in. And I don't want to give the impression that they didn't love their children. In fact, when an earthquake hit, Bill's first thought was of little Billy, who was laying by his side. It's just when you have drugs and drinking, your priorities get really confused. Bill had recently taken this really young lover of 21, a guy named Louis Adelberg Marker from Jacksonville, Florida. Now, mind you, Burroughs was 37 at the time. The book Queer recounts their love affair in graphic detail. Marker wasn't strictly homosexual, eventually tiring of Bill's demands for affection. The two went down to South America in search of something called yahi, or ayahuasca as it's more commonly known now. 
While there, Joan, Ginsburg, and Lucian Carr took off on a trip to a wedding and in search of pot in Guadalajara. When they dropped Joan back in Mexico City, Carr said, I remember how sad Joan was when we left because she was stuck in Mexico, not much money, and a hell of a liquor habit, two kids to keep an eye on and bail off in South America. And we were driving away and leaving her. And she really was the most mournful, sad-looking woman that I'd ever seen. And Joan was pretty much a mess. Their friend Hal Chase recalled that she had lost some hair, she had open running sores, and contracted an incurable blood disease. She expressed to him that she thought she was dying. Bill eventually returned after two months, despondent over his failed love affair with Marker. And obviously Joan was not thrilled with him being away. She gave him some hell. Three days after returning, he was walking down the streets when he was just overcome by a sense of sadness and this feeling of doom. He recalled this even more in a documentary saying, quote, You see, I've always felt myself to be controlled at sometimes by this completely malevolent force, which Brian Jensen describes as the ugly spirit. My walking down the street and tears streaming down my face meant that I knew the ugly spirit which is always the worst part of everyone's character, would take over and that something awful would happen. I went back to the apartment where we were all meeting with this terrible sense of depression. And foolishly, of course, in order to relieve the depression, I started tossing down the drink. Then I said to Joan, it's about time for our William Tell act. And she put a glass on her head. Burroughs arrived at the apartment and began knocking back the drinks. Joan was there and had been nursing drinks all afternoon. So also there were Marker, friends Eddie Woods, and Bob Addison and his girlfriend. Now somehow the conversation turned to how Bill might kick the junk by going to an island in the Amazon. He remarked that he could kill wild hogs for food for the family. And Joan declared that they would all starve to death since he was so shaky when he shot with guns. Nonsense, he said. Put that glass on your head, Joni. Let me show the boys what a great shot old Bill is. Eddie Woods remembers watching the whole scene play out. Joan put the shot glass on her head and said, I can't watch this. You know, I can't stand the sight of blood. Woods remembers thinking that he should grab for the gun, but he was afraid that in doing so, it might cause Bill to shoot Joan, so he just didn't do anything. Next, there was a loud bang, and the shot glass fell to the floor, rolling in these concentric circles. When Woods looked at Joan, her head was slumped to the side, and it was Marker who said, Bill, I think you hit her. Everyone ran to her and saw the blue hole in her temple, and Bill screamed, Joan, Joan, Joan. It was Marker that ran for help, and he found the landlord, Juanita Penaloza, who called Bill's lawyer, Bernard B. Urardo. She also called the hospital that was just four blocks away and the police department. When the ambulance arrived, they found Joan slumped in the chair blood streaming from her head, but she was still breathing. They immediately transported her to the hospital where she was given a blood transfusion. By the time Bill got there on foot, the police and the reporters were swarming. Initially, Bill said that they'd been drinking all day and they were playing William Tell. Because he was drunk, he misfired and he shot Joan accidentally. But minutes later, Bernardi, Gerardo, his lawyer, arrived and told him to say that the gun fired accidentally while he was examining it, and not to say that he was shooting a glass off Joan's head. As they were discussing it, the hospital informed Bill that Joan was pronounced dead. According to the paper, 
He cried and tore at his hair. William Burroughs was arrested for murder. The autopsy revealed that Joan had died from a bullet that entered her brain 4.5 centimeters to the left of her forehead with no exit wound. Bill spent about two weeks in jail, with his lawyer getting him released on bail on September 21st. Eventually, he was sentenced to two years in jail suspended. His brother, Mort, flew down to Mexico City, sent by his parents to help out. And Joan's parents also flew down. The Burroughs family offered to care for the children, but the Vollmers insisted on taking Julie to raise themselves. Joan's mother said, I hope that Bill Burroughs goes to hell and stays there. And sadly, Billy and Julie were never reunited. And Bill Jr. eventually succumbed to drinking himself early on at the tender age of 34. So the lingering question about what happened was, was it really an accident? Friends spoke about how miserable and depressed Joan seemed in Mexico City. The idea that she might have purposely engaged in the game and might have moved her head, as some say, to get shot surfaced. Remember, she'd filed for divorce but withdrew the petition, and she was obviously very unhappy. And then there's also Bird's own confession of his, quote, ugly spirit, and the idea that he might have, in a way, wanted Joan dead. I mean, think of it, he had all these young lovers. To that, those at the scene, though, disagree. They say Burroughs seemed genuinely shocked and dismayed at having shot Joan. Now, personally, I'm going to throw my two cents in. I think it was just a dumb accident. Think about it. People behave very foolishly while drinking. We've all been there. You do very stupid things, and you do them very badly. I think Burroughs legitimately thought he could shoot this glass off Joan's head without incident. And from what I've read, he fancied himself a sure shot and a gun expert. It seemed to me it just was an awful accident. Despite having killed his wife with a gun, Burroughs never shied away from using them again. In his final years, he was still shooting. He finally passed away at the age of 83 on August 2nd, 1997. And quite frankly, I'm amazed that he lived that long, having done as many drugs as he did. He ended up becoming a very successful writer of such books as Queer, Junkie, and of course, Naked Lunch. He wrote of Joan's death, I am forced to the appalling conclusion that I never would have become a writer but for Joan's death, and to the realization of the extent to which this event has motivated and formulated my writing. I live with the constant threat of possession and a constant need to escape from possession, from control. So the death of Joan brought me in contact with the invader, the ugly spirit, and maneuvered me into a lifelong struggle in which I have had no choice except to write my way out. So that was the death of Joan Vollmer. If you get a chance, read this biography of Burroughs by Barry Miles. It's the most comprehensive account of Burroughs that I have ever read. And without it, I wouldn't have had most of my research for this episode. Miles is an absolute expert of the beat generation. Now, all those people suffered these torturous lives due to their addictions. I think pretty much only Ginsburg and Burroughs lived past middle age. I know for a fact my favorite Kerouac, he ended up dying 
pretty young in his 40s from drinking. But luckily for the world, their works still live on. So I've decided that this year's got to be a better year than last one. I took a long break towards the end of the year, and I even contemplated giving up the podcast. Instead, I've decided to double down and come back in the new year with a new attitude. So I'm going to work hard at creating weekly episodes. That's right, you heard it, weekly episodes. I really love writing and putting the podcast together. I just tend to put off recording since I hate my own voice. So if you enjoy the podcast, let me know. Man, I could use the support. Join the Red Rum Blonde discussion group on Facebook. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, or you can email me at redrumblonde at gmail.com. I'm always open to episode suggestions. So hopefully you'll be hearing lots from me in this new year. I want to thank everyone who has stuck by the podcast. Truly, your support means everything. Thank you to my handful of Patreon supporters, too. I'm determined to give you more content. So thanks so much for listening and catch you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.